We're in a series this summer in the miracles of, of Jesus. Uh, as you turn there, that's page 1042, if you're using the blue uh, church Bibles. Uh, uh, as you turn there, I want a, a quote from one of the theologians out at uh, uh, our, our seminary, Covenant Seminary, Dan Doriani, who says that this passage is one of the most beloved but also one of the misunderstood, most misunderstood of all of the miracles of Jesus. And so as you follow along with the reading, I want you to have uh, what I think is a sort of an interpretive key to getting this miracle right. I want you to have at the back of your head uh, what has just happened immediately before. That's the word that's in the text there, verse 22, immediately. And that is that this miracle immediately follows on the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. That spectacular display of Jesus' compassion and love for his people. 5,000 there, of course, is the number of men, but there are uh, an equal amount of women and children as well, closer to 15,000 then, and this is the miracle that then follows on the heels of that one. So here now the reading of God's word. Uh, Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Here now the reading of God's word. Immediately, uh, that is Jesus, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may your spirit give our hearts ears to hear this morning so that we would be both hearers and doers of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this miracle and the miracle uh, juxtaposed uh, with it, the feeding of the 5,000, shows us three things about Jesus. Now, we're going to look at these three perspectives on who Jesus is. It shows Jesus to be the sovereign one, the only one, and the holy one. Those are the three uh, if you will, perspectives we're going to, to look at uh, on Jesus, that he's the sovereign one, the only one, and the holy one. So let's take first a look at this idea that Jesus is the sovereign one. Now, there are certain passages of Scripture that have a quick and easy take on them and what they're all about. 
if you simply say the name of that passage, that event perhaps, people have an idea immediately about what that passage is about. And this is one of them. What you often hear about this passage is that it's about Jesus telling all of us, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. In fact, later on today, uh, Google the word sermon and the phrase in quotes, get out of the boat and count how many results that you get because that is the title of most of the messages uh, about this passage. Get out of the boat. I quit counting when I got to 50 and uh, by some very famous pastors and preachers as well. And, uh, you know, the theme has a sort of hip, um, uh, 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 fresh and progressive feel to it. Be like Peter in your Christian life. Step out in faith. Think outside the box. Do something bold. Push the envelope in your life, your ministry, or your hopes and dreams. That's what the good news is in this passage. Be like Peter. But of course, as you move through a sermon that's called Get Out of the Boat, uh, you get less and less of Peter and you begin to replace Peter. And you're the one that needs to get out of your boat. You're the one that needs to uh, push the envelope of faith in your own life such that the message, the text is really about you. It's about you. So this passage then is about Jesus talking to you and talking to you about all the great things that you can do for Jesus. So that the flip side is then this. Nothing ever happens if you stay inside the boat. Nothing ever happens if you stay inside the boat. In other words, it's law to stay in the boat. It's gospel, it's good news to take the plunge. And so faith only happens when you walk. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So express yourself. Be unconventional. Uh, put your faith in Jesus. Go to Jesus wherever he is to be found. Now, one reason that you can be sure that this is not the main point of the passage, though it, it probably it likely is an application, and we'll get to that, is that it makes Peter the main mover of the events in the passage. Be like him. Do something big like Peter. It also misses the fact that actually the disciples don't worship Jesus as the Son of God until he's in the boat with them. And that's the main point of the passage. The passage is about who Christ is. The passage is about who Christ is. You actually don't want to look at Peter when you read this passage. You don't want to look like Peter as we move through this passage. Just just look at the, 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 the movement of the events as Matthew records them for us. Jesus and his disciples begin how? They start to go separate ways. They end up miles apart. The Sea of Galilee is 17 miles long and 8 miles wide. And when they're halfway across, that's when things start to go wrong. At verse 24, there begins to be layer upon layer upon layer of fear. First, when they're a long way from shore, the waves come up. We're told that the boat is being beaten by the waves. And the waves are not pushing them um, uh, away from the shore. Uh, I mean, toward the shore, they're pushing it away from the shore. 
And then second, uh, the ancients understood that the sea in general, but especially a stormy sea, is filled with uncontrollable powers, powers beyond our control, powers beyond our comprehension, terrifying and incomprehensible forces that can suddenly sweep you away and sink you. And then third, there's the wind. The wind is against them as well. Fourth, there is the hour. This is the fourth watch of the night, we're told. That's pretty late. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 in the morning. They've been out there for hours. They're likely in utter darkness at that time of the night. And finally, they think, because obviously human beings don't walk on water, that when Jesus arrives, he's some kind of ghost. All of these layers of fear, and yet where the narrative goes is to Jesus, is to Jesus coming to them. Now think about that. These layers of fear, where do the fears come from? Who is the active mover in all of the events that we we just talked about? Well, Jesus is the one who goes up the mountain, Jesus is the one who is in constant contact in prayer with the Father. Jesus is the one who sends the disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee. The word used there is he makes them get into the boat, and he makes them go into the storm in the first place. And yet at just the right time, when they're they're in the middle of the sea going nowhere, Jesus can see the plight of his disciples. This is fascinating. They're probably at least six miles away, and through a storm, Jesus can see exactly where they are. And finally, then Jesus calms the storm, revealing that he's the one that brought the storm on in the first place and saves Peter and saves all of them. So who's the story about? Who's the story about? Who is the one who's in control? Is it Peter? Is the point to be like Peter? No, the story's about a Jesus, this man who's in control. He controls the water. He controls the wind. He controls the sea. He controls where their bodies go, where their hearts are. Jesus, when he's on the mountain, his awareness of what's happening in the storm is as if he's in the boat with them. He knows everything that's going on. And what you have with Jesus on the sea is not just a walking on the water, as we so often hear it, but walking through the storm. Notice he's not slogging through the water. He's strolling. He's he's walking from wave crest to wave crest. He's walking in absolute power over over the sea that... That, 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 that makes their hearts filled with anxiety. He just walks across all the forces of death, all the forces of devastation that a storm even today still represents to us, whether we're talking about a Katrina or a Sandy or a Maria. Storms are still, still make us, uh, uh, one of the things that make us feel completely out of control in this life. This is so important to see in the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, you had this major contrast between Jesus and his disciples. And they're both looking in the same direction. They're looking at this crowd of people that that have showed up, uh, 15,000 people or so, and they have two different ways of looking at it, two different ways to think about it. The disciples had one plan. Jesus has his. The disciples want Jesus to dismiss the crowds. There's nothing we can do about these people. 
Jesus has a completely different plan. He says to give them something to eat. Now, the disciples can only see a singular problem here, the inadequacy of five loaves and two fish. Now, it's interesting as you go through that story, and we're not going to go through the text now, but as you, you, it's a famous story, you know it. It's interesting because we know specifically how Jesus feels about that crowd. It says that Jesus loves them, that Jesus has compassion on them. But what we don't know about Jesus is, what is he thinking about the disciples? And it's this miracle that tells us exactly what he's thinking about the disciples. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. Now, that's Matthew's way of saying, this happened right after that. You know, sometimes you can read through the Gospels and as you study them, sometimes it seems like there might even be a whole year between events in the Gospel. He's saying, no, that miracle was followed up immediately by this one. No gap there. And he gets the disciples immediately into a situation not unlike the crowd itself. They're far from home. They have, they're, they're without any resources. They have no one else to turn to in the situation that they're in. They're like the crowd. Why does he do that? Because maybe the crowd learned something and his disciples have not learned it yet. And that is that they have not yet learned that he is the sovereign and sufficient Lord of the universe. They have not yet learned that Jesus is sufficient for every need that they have. Jesus sets up this encounter by sending these experienced fishermen onto a boat where their sufficiency in all of their ability and experience is simply not enough. It is not enough. A situation filled with fear and fatigue and anxiety so that them by comforting them, by coming to them, by caring for them, by calming the storm, by literally rescuing rescuing them, he can show them I am the son of God. And by the end, they get it. They worship him. For many of us, we feel like life is a walk. Life is a walk on solid ground instead of a sea voyage. And we think that our heart is kind of like a garden plot, a plot that we ourselves plant. We know what's planted in this garden plot. We put a fence around it to keep the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. But here's what happens. Maybe so far you are happy. And maybe so far things are going along pretty well in your life or at the moment. Things are pretty good. You see other people whose lives have fallen apart and you've assumed that perhaps they're incompetent. Maybe they're, they've been unwise. Maybe they have not made a good plan. Maybe that, they lack wisdom. Maybe they don't know how to make their own luck, you think. You're thinking that there's something wrong with them, a lack of guts, maybe a lack of discipline. But then you get pushed onto the sea yourself. And it's, don't take it personally. It happens to Everybody. It happens to God's own people. Um, think about Abraham and Isaac pushed out into the depths. Jacob and Elijah, it happens to them. Hannah and Esther. Daniel and, of course, Jonah literally gets pushed onto the sea. What happens is you think things are going well, and all of a sudden comes a storm in your life. 
And all of your achievements and all of your success and on all of your wealth and all of your health, everything is swept away by forces over which you are not in control. Beyond your comprehension. Or you may think you know your own heart. Maybe you think you know your spouse's heart. Maybe you think you know your heart and your friend's heart. But there are deep, dark, and slimy things down there in the heart. In their heart. And if you're truthful about yourself, there are dark and slimy things down in your heart. And you put two deep, dark, and slimy hearts together, and there's a lot of darkness over the depths. And your relationships start to go down. And your friendships start to go down. Friends, the Bible says that if you think you're going to be able to just, in a sense, walk across the lake, if you think you're going to be able to get through life without Jesus or by doing it on your own, here's the warning. You have a very rude awakening coming. You will have times in your life where you will not be able to do it alone or do it in your own strength. You know, it's interesting. The culture has a term for this. Out at sea. Where did that come from? When we say I'm at sea, what we mean is I'm out of control, I'm confused, or both. This miracle basically says it doesn't matter how deep the deep is. It doesn't matter how high the waves. It doesn't matter how strong the wind is in your life. Jesus Christ is a match for it. In fact, how ridiculous to say that Jesus is a match for it. He created it. He's in sovereign control over it. He made it all. So do you see that Jesus is your sovereign Lord? He is, but do you see him that way? Do you see him that way? Second point, Jesus is the only one. I, I want to say, our English translations that we have of the Bible are excellent. Our English translations are excellent. Uh, that's why I try to always from the pulpit here at Hope Presbyterian Church stay away from any kind of Greek lessons, okay? But today it's almost unavoidable. And that is that there's a preposition that keeps coming up over and over in the passage when it comes to Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you're so far away from the English lessons that you had in school that even told you what the parts of speech are so that when I say preposition, you have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> okay? But here's what a preposition is. It's a tiny little itty-bitty little word that carries a lot of weight to it. A preposition is a word that governs a noun and expresses then that noun's relationship to everything else in a sentence. So, the word on, very tiny word. But it's important in a sentence that says, the man is on the mountain. It tells you everything about where the man is relative to the mountain. Or that she arrived after dinner. That's an important fact, that she wasn't at the dinner, she didn't arrive before the dinner, she arrived after the dinner. Well, in this case, we have a Greek word, it's just a tiny little word called pros, which means toward. And in the context here, it means not only to come toward something or to move toward something, but rather it means that you're actually arriving at the place you were headed. You're there. You have arrived at your destination, which means, as one commentator says, that we should probably picture Jesus. We should probably picture Jesus in verse 25, where it says in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. 
that Jesus is there. That with pros in this usage means Jesus is right there. He has arrived to help them. So that when Peter says, command me to come to you, Jesus is standing right at the side of the boat. The same preposition is used for Peter in verse 29 too, so that when Peter steps down out of the boat, he's taking a step or two. And that's it. It's like when my kids were, were, were very, very small and I'm, I'm, I'm teaching them how to swim and at one point I, I jump in the pool. You're three or four years old. doesn't matter if your dad's standing right there in three feet of water. You're, when you're that age, you can drown in three feet of water. And there's cement down there and if you're three or four years old, you've probably already fallen on cement and it hurts. So when daddy says, come, you might as well be across the pool. And it's scary. And will daddy catch me? And what's it going to feel like? And what if he drops me? And water's slippery? And I've fallen in the bathtub and I can't see the bottom. Only two feet away, but it's deep. In other words, Peter is right next to Jesus when he begins to sink, which is why Jesus, all he has to do is extend his hand, you see, and take hold of him. And you don't just, by the way, see it in the prepositions. In verse 25, there's sort of this, this like long shot, if you will. Uh, think of a film, like a long shot. And where is Jesus walking? Well, Jesus is walking across the sea. But when we get to Peter, close up, it's like looking at his foot. He's stepping on the water. Stepping on the water. So what does it mean that Peter is not walking 50 yards before he suddenly begins to doubt? Because if he did, the text means something very different. The event should be read maybe as maybe your old Sunday school class meant it or, or in paintings that you've seen of this whole event. You are to walk out in faith. It would mean that if you do your part, then God will do his part. So go and meet God halfway. But that's the opposite of the kind of Jesus that you and I need. That's the kind of Jesus that leaves you still, brothers and sisters, in your sin. A Jesus that says God helps those who helps themselves, which is, by the way, Benjamin Franklin and not the Bible, and makes you go on a boat that he knows will confront the storm because he's the Lord of the storm. But he only comes to you halfway That makes Jesus worse than a tease. That makes him evil. That makes him evil. And worse than that, it makes you your own savior. Jesus has come halfway. You've got to come the rest of the way. That makes you the author of your own salvation. And make no mistake, that's what this passage is about. The the key moment of the story is when, when Peter recognizes Jesus and said, Lord, save me. This isn't about nothing less than salvation. And, and who's doing it? And who's in control of it? To all of you in this room, you're on storms in your life. I know that. All of us, the, 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 nobody goes through. If, if you've had a placid week this, this week, get ready. <laughs> right? Because there's always a storm coming, Right? By the preaching of the word today, this passage, 
Jesus is reaching out to you. He's right there. He's right here. And he's commanding you, come to me. Will you but just hold on to him? And that takes us to our last point. Jesus is the Holy One. We keep saying that this miracle is really about Jesus, Jesus first and foremost, and we mean it. But now let's say it's not as if Peter doesn't matter at all. It's just that he's secondary. And the best part, the very best part of Peter's faith, and this is, this, this, his faith is an issue because, again, Jesus does point out his doubt, is not that Peter thinks he can do this, but that Peter comes to the realization that he can't. Did you notice verse 20, 28? He can't step onto the water unless Jesus commands him to. Unless Jesus commands him to. Peter is putting his faith in the word of Jesus Christ. It's the word of Jesus that will accomplish Peter's walking. It's when Peter puts his confidence in the sufficiency of the word that Peter knows that he can step out. And, and, and the place this, this is pointed out, the place where you see this, the, the trust in the word of Jesus and why Peter should trust in the word of Jesus is verse 27 when Jesus says, it is I. It is I. Think of it this way. When you knock on someone's door and you know this person, you knock on someone's door and you know this person really, really well, what do they say? So you knock, and they say, who's there? All you have to, have to do is say two words, right? You know, what are they? It's me! And, and just by the sound of your voice, they know it's you. Recognition. That's what Jesus is saying here. In fact, in English, what are you supposed to say? It is I. It is I. Try that next time. <laughs> in other words, what Jesus says here is far more amazing than what he does in the miracle. It truly is. What Jesus says here is far more amazing than what he does in the miracle because he's proclaiming the divine name. This is the ego ami. This is the this is the I am. You, you know, you think it's amazing that I've walked on water, but, but put it all together, guys. Who is the one that feeds people the manna in the wilderness? Do you, do you remember the, the, the immediately ago, the feeding of the 5,000? Who does that? Pass the test, right? It is I. The I am does that. And who does this? Who walks over the depths of the sea in the power? The, who does that? All he has to say is, it is I. I'm the one that you need. Yes, he's the Lord of the storm. Yes, he's enthroned over the flood. That's amazing. But no, what he says is more amazing than what he does because he literally says, I am the one, the Holy One, the Almighty One. Isn't it amazing that with all these fears, all those layers of fears that we talked about, the text tells us that he, they're, they're not actually terrified until what? Until they see Jesus. 
Now, we like to think that, you know, like, I don't know if you, you, you grew up with these, but, you know, those, those little, you know what the, the precious moment Jesus looks like? Remember those, you know, sort of white ceramic Jesus who just looks like he wouldn't hurt a fly, right? When they see Jesus, that's when they're terrified because everything's starting to, he's the sovereign one. He's the only one. He's the holy one. They're starting to see it. And so what Jesus is saying, you and I cannot say. We can't say these things, right? We can't say, we can't say, I was. He can't say, I was, because he's always been. He can't say, I will be. That would have no meaning to Jesus because he's eternal. He's never going to change. When God says, I am, he's not only saying, I have no beginning. He's not only saying, I have no end. He's saying, I'm perfect. Therefore, I never change. Therefore, I never will change. So my love for you that I proclaimed earlier to you is still perfect because it's unchanging. It never needs to change because it's a holy love because I am the holy one. Now, what this means for you, that Jesus makes this incredible claim, is that you can't just recognize who Jesus is, that he's the Holy One, without then living as if he is the Holy One. Because Jesus does get into the boat with them. And and the Bible's you know, assertion about this, that Jesus then is the, your, your ultimate authority, is good news, the Bible says. Because we think our lives so often throughout the week are about what other people think about me, how other people judge me. We think, we think our lives are about how other people look at us and examine our hearts and our behaviors. We think our lives are very much about how we judge ourselves. And what you think about yourself and how you're feeling on an individual day. And we also think that our lives are so often about our loves. What, what, what are our love? What do we love the most? And are we getting that love back? But when Jesus is in the center of your life, when he's in the, the holy one is in the boat with you, nothing else matters. Storms don't matter. What other people think about you matter doesn't matter so much. What you even feel about yourself, which most of us think is inviolable. If I feel bad about myself, no one can tell me otherwise. Nobody can just sort of cheer me up. But when I recognize that the Holy One is in my life and the Holy One has claimed my life and the Holy One has redeemed my life and the Holy One has said, I brought you into my life, then I'm never sinking. And my feelings are then overwhelmed by his feeling for me. And it's better than a feeling because his feelings don't change because it's really not all about his feelings. It's about his promises and his promises, I will never leave or forsake you. That changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. This is why this is so important. We're going to come to this table in a minute. And one of the things that this table proclaims is his forgiveness. I want you to think about that for a minute. We love forgiveness. So many of us love forgiveness, but we kind of want to keep Jesus at bay. 
We love the idea that, uh, that Christianity proclaims forgiveness, but we don't actually want to believe in the God who offers it. You can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that intellectually and hold those two things together. If, he, if you love the forgiveness of Christianity, you've got to love the one that actually does forgive you. And if you love forgiveness so much, that means that, some, that, that you've sinned. Well, who did you sin against? Yourself? Your neighbor? And who determined what's sin in the first? No, only the Holy One can do this. You've got to keep these things together. Either Jesus is the authority over your life or he's not, but there's no in-between space there. It's all or nothing with Jesus. When he comes into your life, he has to be the center of your life. He is the preeminent fact of your life. It doesn't matter what else I want to do, what else I feel about myself. You know, this is where I think we have to look at that, that, that other little word in the passage, and it's the word little. Right? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? We get into, whenever you think of, oh, oh you of little faith, don't you do what, well, I don't know if you do what I do, but I start to think about my faith in terms of measurements. How big is my faith today? And what, you know, somebody please give me a faith ruler, right? So I can actually measure how big my faith is. I've seen people you know, doing pastoral counseling that come into my office worried about their faith, thinking about their faith, in tears over their faith. And all I can say is your faith is off the charts. Because I know you feel like it's small, but you're not in this room talking to me about your faith unless your faith is pretty big. Or the absence of it today is big, such that your faith is big. We try to quantify our faith, and the minute we start to do that, we become like Peter. Peter had little faith, and we start to think, well, how can I have more than Peter? Maybe I can make it farther across the lake than Peter did. But friends, all of that self-measuring, again, puts you at the center of your own life. Yes, you must follow Jesus. Yes, you must obey Jesus. He is, as we just said, your Lord. But what Jesus is pointing out is that what's true of Peter is true of all of us. We're all people of little faith. Every single one of us is a person of little faith. You know, those preachers are right when they move from Peter to us. It might as well be sort of a hyphenated name with a southern draw. Oh, y'all, little faith. So that the question then isn't for us at Hope Presbyterian Church, isn't the size of our respective faith, which is common to all of us, but what is the size of your Jesus? Is he the Holy One or is he not? Is he the authority over your life or is he not? Is he the one that controls and made the storm and put you on the boat and gave you life and breath in the first place and put you out into the world or is he not? Because the passage says he does all of that. But do you see him that way? See, what's important isn't the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. There's no better way to illustrate that than this. If I say that the Jets are going to the playoffs this year, are you laughing at me or are you laughing at the Jets? Both, okay. 
Right answer. That's the right answer. But see, you're ultimately laughing at the Jets because it's not as funny as if I say, I have confidence that the Patriots are going to the playoffs this year. Yes. <laughs> there goes the bagel. Um, you, you see what I'm saying? Faith is defined by its object. Faith is defined by its object. And my Jets don't even give me a shaky ground to stand on. They only give me sinking sand. But when the object is Jesus Christ, then you go from, as the, as, the, as the translation says, if it's you, Jesus. But think, he's standing right there. When, when the text says, if it's you, Jesus, a better translation is probably, since it's you, Jesus, command me to do what you're doing. Peter's always doing that, right? Let me be like you. Let me do what you do. Let me put a tent up for, for, for you and we'll all have a tent on the mountain, right? Since it's you, Jesus, command me to walk too. since you're the Holy One. Right? And when Jesus is in command, when he is command over yet, there will be swirling waters, there will be storms in your life. Right? When he's in command, that's why when Jesus gets in the boat, suddenly the storm goes away. He's teaching them. He Think about it. How much has Jesus taught you in the storms of your life? When have you learned the most? You know, I hate this. I wish I could, any class I ever took, I wish I could audit it. Right? No test. (laughs) That's my kind of class. But you know what? I find that whenever I take a class that has a test at the end of it, I have to admit I learn more than if I just audited the class. Because I got to know it. Jesus wants them to know it. You're going to be my messengers to these people. You're, the church, we've been going through the book of Acts, storm after storm after storm, and Jesus wants his disciples to know, oh, this is what happens when a storm happens in your life. You can be put in jail. Uh, you know, Herod can be coming after you. The neck, Whoever the next Caesar is, the whole church can look like it's going to fall apart, but, but we have a strong Jesus. We have an almighty God. We have the Holy One. We have to end, but one of the great and beautiful ironies of this miracle, this moment, is that Peter thinks he will get Jesus. He will be able to have and hold, if you will, onto Jesus if, listen for the preposition, if he can stand on top of the water. But he really gets Jesus. He really gets to know how much Jesus loves him. He gets Jesus the most when he's sinking under the water. When he realizes he can't do it on his own, that's when he feels and knows the love of Jesus the most. Now here's a hint. All of these miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000 and this one as well, move to the cross haven't really said that in this series before. But all these miracles move to the cross. The manna, the Passover, the feeding of God's people, this table that we're about to come to, the supper, the bread of heaven, where he is the Passover lamb, all of this is moving toward the cross. And so does this miracle. The storm points back to the flood and to Noah and to Jonah and the whale and points ahead to the cross. Several times Jesus says they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but a greater than Jonah is here. Who's he talking about himself? 
For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. The cross for three days and three nights. What Jesus is saying is there's one storm. There's one storm, Jesus is saying, in which I will sink. I will sink. There's one storm in which the waves and the billows actually go over me and I go down where I will choose not to walk over them in my sovereign power as the Holy One. I'm going to go under the storm that can really kill you and it's called sin and death. And I'm going to take that on. It's the storm of judgment. It's the greatest storm there is. It's the storm of punishment for sin. It's the biggest storm that there ever is. It's the storm of eternal justice. I'm going to go under those waves. I'm going to, I'm going to be cast into the depths. It's because I sank into the storm that can really kill you that you will be raised above. I'm going to switch places with you. Brothers and sisters, we will doubt. We will. We are defined in the passage as being the little faith ones. You will get distracted like Peter by the winds of change in your life, the winds of trial in your life. It will happen. So when you're sinking, run like this miracle to the cross. That's what the miracle is about. Run to the one who commands water. When you get in a storm, run to the one who commands storms. Run to the one who's actually in control of your life because you've given him control of your life. He's so gentle. Command Jesus today to come into the boat of your life with you. Just receive him. He's right here. Let's pray. Lord God, you're the only worthy object of our faith. And um, uh, this faith that we have is not, thank God, controlled by the behaviors of, of us, by the behaviors of Christians, because our faith is shaky and our lives are shaky and we are wobbly. It's all controlled by who you are and who you are for us, such that we need to sup upon you. So Lord, as we come to this table, make us receivers of your holiness. Make us receivers of your mercy and grace to us and make us receivers of life itself. In Jesus' name, amen.